Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gen J Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Heffington, and this show is brought to you by your friends at Generation Joshua. As we travel around the country working with young leaders, we meet all sorts of amazing people who are working to change their corner of the world for the better. If you've ever been to one of our iGovern camps, you've probably heard from some of these people. But we thought that it would be awesome if we could sit down for some in-depth conversations and get their stories on the record so that we could share them with the greater Gen J community. This podcast is the culmination of that process, and we think that you're going to find these conversations encouraging and inspiring. So go ahead, pop in your headphones, connect to your Bluetooth speaker, whatever you got to do, and let's get into today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Gen J Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Heffington, and our guest today is somebody that I'm has been a goal to get on the show for a really long time. He's the president of HSLDA. Um, it's, it's our honor to have Mike Smith on the Gen J Podcast today. And I'm going to just read you his biography before we jump into the questions. Michael Smith and his wife, Elizabeth, along with Michael Ferris and his wife, Vicki, incorporated Homeschool Legal Defense Association in 1983 and were the original board members. Mike grew up in Arkansas, graduated from the University of Arkansas, where he played basketball, majoring in business administration. Upon graduation, he entered the U.S. Navy and served three years before attending law school at the University of San Diego. In 1972, he was admitted to the bar in California and also has been admitted to the Supreme Court of the United States. He is licensed in Virginia, California, and Washington, D.C., Mike and his family began homeschooling because their five-year-old flunked kindergarten. This was quite a disappointment to Mike in light of the fact that he was preparing this child to be president of the United States by starting his education as early as possible. His family's life changed drastically when he heard a radio program in 1981, which introduced him to the idea of homeschooling. When they started homeschooling, they began homeschooling one year at a time to meet the academic and social needs of their children. After spending lots of time around people like Mike Ferris, he became convinced he had been called to use his gifts and talents in the legal profession to assist homeschoolers who were being prosecuted because they didn't hold a teacher certificate or satisfy a school district uh, that, that they could completely teach their children. Mike uh, came to HSLDA full-time in 1987 and has served as the president of the organization since the year 2001. In addition to serving as president, he is also a contact lawyer for California and Puerto Rico. All of Mike's children are now grown, and three of the four were homeschooled. The most enjoyable part of Mike's job is when he's able to go to homeschool conferences and meet what he calls America's greatest heroes, homeschooling moms. Well, there's a lot to talk about there, Mike. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Daniel. It's good to be here. I, this was not on the list, but can you just quickly tell us about your basketball career? <laughs> well, uh, I played basketball in high school along with tennis and golf. and I mean, I, w- I love sports. Yeah. Okay. So that was my focus, unfortunately, in high school, hey. pretty much, in school. Great. So I was offered a four-year scholarship at Hendricks College, which is a, a Methodist college. Mm-hmm. It's in uh, Arkansas, Conway, Arkansas. And I went over with my coach and did a little background. My brother had gone to the University of Arkansas, okay. and when I was in high school and even in junior high, actually, uh, I went up there and stayed with him, and I, I became excited about going to the University of Arkansas. Sure. But the University of Arkansas did not offer me a basketball okay. scholarship. Okay. Yep. But Hendricks did, four-year school, wow. four-year scholarship, uh, high academics. Wow. Uh, but not, uh, not a major basketball school. Sure. So I went over there with my coach, and the school was so small, it was disappointing. Okay, sure. So I said to my parents, I said, I really want to go to the University of Arkansas. And they said, well, you you can go where you want. My folks own an insurance agency, so I think from the time I was born or one year of age, they took a policy out, an education policy. So they had had the money to cover education, plus the... Tuition was $125 a semester at that time. Which school? University of Arkansas. Good heavens. You could do room and board for $1,000 a year. No way. Yes way. That's insane. That's 1961. Insane. You see what's happened to education. Yeah. So I told them that, and they said, okay. So I went to the University of Arkansas. Didn't have a scholarship. So I went out and tried out for the uh, <clears throat> freshman team. Now, mm-hmm. back then, freshman and the uh, was undergraduate, 
and and sophomore, junior, senior, uh, they played a separate schedule. Okay. Today, it's, you know, you come in as a freshman, you can play on the varsity. Right. But then right. it was freshman and varsity. So okay. we had varsity. There were five scholarship players, five or six. But we had 12 games, and I actually was able to start every game. So oh I ended goodness. up beating out some scholarship guys. So, so reading in between the lines, you were a good basketball player. Fairly good. That's Fairly amazing. Good. My high school team, actually, of which I was the captain and the number two scorer on the team. Wow. We won 31 games my senior year and lost two. That's insane. So we only lost one game going into the state tournament, and then we got beat. We shouldn't have lost. We actually should have gone to the final game. There was one team better than us. I need need to ask you all my basketball questions now. We did a March Madness bracket. I should have come to you. I don't even try. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. But the University of Arkansas went to the Elite Eight this year. So that was good. Yeah, that must have felt really good. good. So, But after my freshman year, uh, we started the varsity, and they invited me to come out. And they gave me books. Okay. But they didn't offer me a scholarship. So I just said, you know what? Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to be starting. I uh-huh. was six feet tall. Okay, yep. Which I'm still six feet tall. Yep. And the starting guards on the varsity were six five. Oh, man. So I thought, you know, I, this is probably going to be yeah. sitting on the bench, and yeah, I've never yeah, done yeah. that. So that's when I actually started playing golf a little more seriously. Okay, okay. And a partner, myself, Jim Becker, and I won the intramural golf championship twice at the University of Arkansas. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Sports has been a big part of my life. I, did, I, I <laughs> didn't realize exactly how far you'd gone with that. That's, that's amazing. So this is great. Um, we, we've already talked a little bit about, you know, young, like younger adolescent Mike Smith. But let's go back even further to where did you grow <laughs> up? What kind of environment was it? Yeah. Your parents, you said they had – did you say they had an insurance they business? They owned an insurance okay. Okay. agency. Uh, my father also was in the National Guard for 40 years. Oh, my goodness. And during World War II, which I was born uh, during World War II, uh, my father was in Florida, stationed at Camp Blanding, which is right outside of Jacksonville. That's where I was born. Wow. And then we went to Oklahoma, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, but our home was Mena, okay. Arkansas. So okay. that's where I was raised. That's where I went to high school. All right. Until I was 17 years of age, but I, I never went back after college. Okay. What kind of kid were you? <laughs> well, I've already told you I was really interested in sports, so that sports. kept me out of trouble yep, pretty that's much. Good. Uh, I didn't get in much trouble except with my mom. And my mom was a disciplinarian, and she believed in spare the rod, spoil the child. Okay, okay. She was raised in the church. She was a Christian woman, and she, did, she didn't take any sass, mm-hmm. nonsense. You get in trouble, you paid for it. So we had a, a willow tree out behind our house. Okay. And that's what she used to spank me with. Wow. She'd take a little paring knife, and she'd go out the back door, and I knew I was going to get it. And several times I tried to run, and although my mom was a lot obviously older than me, she could catch me. Mm Wow. It was really disappointing. Moms. (laughs) But when I was about 13 years of age, (laughs) when I was 13 years of age, 12 or 13, I think 13, my folks... Uh, decided to build what they call a spec home. My dad okay, uh, sure. bought 10 acres outside, yep. right on the edge of Mina. Yep. And he decided to build a house out there and sell it. Yep. And my folks went through the Depression, so they didn't have any debt. Everything was cash. They bought wow. used cars. They were frugal. The they were Dave thing. Ramsey before Dave Ramsey. They were Dave Ramsey, and they saved money. All right. So <clears throat> I, I looked at that property out there. There were no trees around it, especially a willow tree in the back. Oh. And I thought, if I can talk my parents into moving into uh-huh. that house, there's no more spanking. <laughs> Amazing. Pea brain, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I kept nagging and nagging and nagging, and yeah. that house kept closer yep. to being finished. And finally, my dad said, okay, Mike, okay, we'll live in the new home. Nice. We're going to move. And I thought, oh, praise the Lord. Yeah. You know? But I w- we were in that house about a week and, you know, I did something that got my mom upset, yeah. and she's looking around. What am I going to do? Unfortunately, the carpenters in the utility room had left a little wallboard on the bottom around, oh you know, goodness. those little yeah. thing. Yeah. She found it. Oh. And she started whacking. Oh, man. Well, that stuff's not, it's kind of real. Yeah, yeah. And it was breaking up, and lumber's flying everywhere. <laughs> oh <my laughs> this goodness. is my side of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and finally my mom said, okay, Mike. I guess you're too old for this. 
Wow. And I thought, oh, wow, this did work out after wow. all. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that's kind of my upbringing. That's, that's amazing. So uh, you said your mom uh, was a Christian. When, when did you personally come to have a relationship with Christ? Well, I was raised in the first Christian church in Mina. So all the young people were, were in the youth group. So all, all the young people about 12 or 13 were expected to, on Easter Sunday... Okay. This was kind of the tradition. Nobody mm-hmm. forced you to do it. My parents sure. didn't force me to do it. Uh, I think I was 13 years old. I went forward, made a profession of faith, and that night I was baptized. Wow. Now, before that, I'd gone to summer camp that, that very summer. Yep. And Bobby Crane and I, they, you know, every night they gave an invitation mm-hmm. to come forward for the kids. I went forward. I mean, yep. I think that's probably when I got okay. under conviction yep. and thought I needed to say, I knew I needed a Savior. Sure. I understood all of that. And I went forward. But the interesting thing, they did a baptism, Daniel, at the end of the week. And my brother came over because my parents did not want me to get baptized at that camp. They oh. wanted me baptized in our in church. The church. Okay, okay. <laughs> and that really was disappointing. That's one of the disappointments, uh-huh. I think, in, in, in my life because I, I was ready. Yeah. But then we waited a little while and then okay. Easter came and okay. that was it. Okay. So that's 13. Now... Um, I can't say that um, I was filled with the Holy Spirit sure. because I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. We weren't taught about the Holy Spirit. As a matter okay. of fact, in our church, you could actually lose your salvation. Oh, interesting. And the way you were saved, you believed and were baptized by immersion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's kind of a works-oriented. Okay. Now, you didn't lose your salvation just because you sinned. But uh-huh. if you turned willfully turned your back right. on God, you could lose it. So, okay. That was my background, and so all through high school, although people knew that I went to church, and and on the basketball team, I was captain of the basketball team. Yep. So Coach Rackley, who's one of my great heroes, yeah, uh, he would always ask, Mike, would you lead us in prayer? So oh, I prayed great. before every game. That's great. So people knew I was a Christian. I didn't live it out mm-hmm. all the time, and so I go through college, and then I get married. And when I was 33 years of age, I was living in Santa Monica. We were attending a Lutheran church. I was in a Bible study with the pastor teaching, and he mentioned the word grace. Mm. And to me, I'd never heard that word, but it, it hit me right in my wow. soul. Wow. And so I went to him right after that, and I said, can we get together at some point? I'd love for you to tell me more about grace. And yeah. we did. And that's what rewrote my life, because oh my I goodness. understood that you cannot earn your way into heaven. That's Amen. religion. Yeah. Religion is trying to make God pleased with you, that he'll answer your prayers, yep. that he'll do things for you and yep. take you to heaven. That's religion. Yep. Christianity is, that doesn't matter. Mm. What matters is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so my wife and I both, from that day forward, really, I'd say really committed our life to Christ. Yeah. And we immediately started doing evangelism explosion training, which wow. is the best thing I've ever done for my Christian growth wow. in my life, learning how to just, I'd learned the gospel. Yep. I got it. I understood yep. it and I could communicate it that's and I powerful. still use it. Wow. I still use it in my life too. That's how I witness. Wow. The two diagnostic questions are fantastic. You ask somebody, by the way, Daniel, if you were to die tonight, would you yep. go to heaven? Mm-hmm. That gets their attention. Yep. You earn the right to do that. You don't just pop it on somebody. Sure, sure. But after you've kind of developed a relationship, and it doesn't take a long time to develop a relationship, you yeah. can do that in 15 or 20 minutes. Because when you start asking personal questions mm-hmm. from people, well, where were you raised? Right, right. Well, how was your parents? What were your right. parents like? Yeah. Did you have a religious background? Where'd yeah. you go to college? What do you do now? Yep. After you go through that, and they gave, you've developed a relationship yep. because yep. you've shown an interest in yep. these people. Then you can pop the question. Mm-hmm. So typically, Daniel, what a person says when you ask that question is, "What do you think they say?" If they're if they're not like if an I outright, die tonight, would yeah. I go to heaven? I feel like they would say, "I hope so." Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Uh huh. I sure hope so. Right, right. And then the next question is, okay, Daniel. Let's say you're before God, and he says to you, Daniel, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you mm. tell him? That's the second diagnostic question. And that gets you the, well, is I haven't works? killed anybody. You, know, yeah, yeah. you say, well, I'm not really yeah. a bad person. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Daniel, you know, I have some good news for you. Right. 
Heaven is not based upon what you've done. Mm, yeah. Because unless you're perfect, yeah. which is the standard, yep. you know, like going out to the airport, if you've got a little metal on you, you're not going to yep. get through. Right, right. If you've got one sin, if you've ever committed a sin, you're not going into heaven. Oh, boy. But I yeah. got good news for you. It's based on faith. And so then you go through the gospel. That's amazing. Anyway, that, that really turned my life around, and I was 33 years of age at that time. Wow. That, that is powerful. I appreciate you sharing that. That's uh, it's interesting how y- you can be around you can be around church. You can you can have a relationship with God, but sometimes there's that point in life where everything clicks. And it, I think, what, what did you say? You said it, it changed your soul. It's like it did. That, yeah, that's it hit powerful. My soul. That's powerful, man. Um, why did you choose to become a lawyer? Why did you go into the law? My family has a history of lawyers. As a matter of fact, okay. my great-grandfather, Edward Smith, he went to William & Mary here in Virginia. My goodness, that's yeah. near where I grew up. That's correct. And then he moved to Texas, and okay. he, became, he was a lawyer there in Texas. Oh, wow. My grandfather didn't have any education. They okay. were just too poor. Yep. But he was a justice of the peace. Oh, wow. And I also was told very early in my life that our family heritage uh, was our family came to Virginia in 1690. They came down into the Tidewater area. Then they moved along with the Marshall family, John Marshall's father right. and his family, a whole bunch of kids. They moved to Warrington, Virginia, That's just right down, out here. Yeah, that's just down the road. Right out here. They were known as the Germantown Smiths because they purchased their property from the Germans who oh. had been given it by the government. Uh-huh. And they lived next door to the Marshalls. And two of the Smith sisters married two of the Marshall brothers. Wow. So I knew that background, John yeah. Marshall being the first. So, and people always think, well, Mike, what are you going to be? And I said, well, I don't really know, but maybe a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Or the other thing was I was interested in coaching basketball because I, of my coach, right? I could see was that, such yeah. such an influence in my life because yeah. he was just such a tremendous man. So that kind of um, got me interested. And then... When I was in the Navy and I was stationed in Las Vegas, I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles with my cousin, who was a lawyer. Okay. And he was on me every time. Mike, you got to be a lawyer. You got to huh. be a lawyer. You got to perpetuate the family and all. All right, that. sure. So there you have it. That's the wow. reason. So kind of the, kind of a family business yeah. tie in, in in a way. In a way. That's very neat. Um, so as a young person who wanted to be a lawyer or a basketball coach, would you have been surprised? if you could, could somehow see into the future and realize that you would spend a lot of your career leading a nonprofit homeschool organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. Daniel, I made a goal when I was 16 years of age Okay. that I wanted to be wealthy enough, have enough money, to be able to live a, a nice lifestyle and be a member of a country club. Oh, right. Bean, Arkansas didn't have a country club. <laughs> we had a nine-hole golf course. I started playing golf when I was 15. We had a nine-hole golf course with sand green. Okay. If you know anything about golf, that's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got a chance to go to Texarkana, Texas, uh-huh. and they had a beautiful golf course. Okay. Grass, greens, everything is yep. grass, and this palatial clubhouse. Yep. And I walk in there, and I think I've gone to heaven. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, I said, that's my goal. Okay. Well, that's a really superficial, terrible goal. Sure, but sure. Again, I think, again, I think I was 30, 31 years of age when I joined one of the most prestigious country clubs in the United States, Riviera Country Club in LA. Oh, wow. I think I've heard of that one. So now I've reached my goal. Where do you yeah. even go with that? yeah. Thank God I heard about grace. Yeah. Because I would have lived an empty, pretty much empty life. I'm not attending church, but I don't have any motivation. Right. What's my motivation? Wow. Just to support my family. Now, that's a good motivation. Sure, sure. And I've always had that because my dad supported us. My mom also, my mom did work. But I knew I had a responsibility to support my family. Yep. And I wanted to do that well. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I stayed in that country club for about seven years, five okay. or seven years, and I thought, this is just not good. It's uh-huh. just empty. Yeah. Right? So anyway, that was a lot of my motivation wow. in, in my early years. 
Wow, that's fascinating. So what what got you from the country club fast track to the homeschooling community? Well, homeschooling did it in 1981. Okay. We had four children. One of our daughters was already 16 years old at that oh, wow. time. But we had a son in Christian kindergarten, a Lutheran school, and then a three-year-old and 10th grader. Okay. 10th grader was in a Christian school yep. as well. We were living in Santa Monica, California. I was listening to focus on the family, Dr. Raymond Moore, and okay. that's our, also a connection with Mike Ferris. Raymond Moore got both of us into homeschooling. Okay, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Raymond Moore and his wife, Dorothy, had doctorate degrees in childhood development. They oh. studied kids. Wow. How they learn yep. with an education emphasis. He was on Dr. Dobson's program. And he had written several books, but two of them that were interesting were School Can Wait Better Late Than Early. So their proposition, okay. Daniel, was that that kids go to school way too early, but generally speaking, little boys especially, okay, because they're two or three years behind little girls in their maturation. Mm. Mm. So a little boy going to school at six is really four compared to a little girl at six. Interesting. So this is the reason we see so much, so many problems with little boys, mm. and today they treat that uh, as some kind of special education. They start giving them okay. drugs. Uh-huh. This is the pro- this is one of the main problems with education today. Kids start too early. Hmm. So we, I heard that, and I came home and told my wife about it and asked if she'd be interested and teaching our kids at home. Mm-hmm. And she said, yes. But she said, what would your role be in that? Mm. I hadn't thought about my role, Daniel. I had her role all laid out. Yeah, for yeah. <laughs> Job description and everything. She gets up in the morning, they're at the <laughs> dinner, you know, they're at the table, and around the table are the little kids. Yep. And there's learning taking place. Yep. Well, she had a lot more um, role for me than I really recognized. So we, we had some issues with that. But I helped out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But she is truly a hero yeah. in my mind because yeah. of what she did with our kids. And that's how I got into homeschooling. Then I got into trying to help people homeschool because at the time we started homeschooling in 1981, there weren't a lot of homeschoolers yep. in California where we were. But there were some, and they were getting in trouble mm. because the State Department of Education had taken the position that because homeschooling wasn't mentioned in the law, mm-hmm. the only provision that could apply to homeschooling was the tutorial exemption, which you had to be a certified teacher. Interesting. And you had to be certified in the state of California and had to be active and had to be the grade levels. Yep. Most parents are not certified teachers. Right. Right. So what are they going to do in California? So they call the lawyer, Mike Smith, and they say, Mike, we'd like to have you represent us. Mm -hmm. You're a Christian lawyer, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian lawyer. And as Mike Ferris, I believe, told you, when they ask for a Christian lawyer, they're really wanting a free lawyer. Yes, yes. And let's face it, most of the homeschooling parents don't have the money to pay, even back then, $100 right. an hour. I mean, you right. can run up a bill in a hurry right. doing the research to try to figure out how to keep these people out of trouble. Yep, yep. That's how I got into it. Okay. My first case was, as it turned out, was a gal from Arkansas that had moved to California. Oh, wow. Uh, and she sent her kids to public school. They'd already been, a, they'd always been in public school. So her little first grader was sitting in the lunchroom, and she prayed before she ate her food. Christian kid, yeah. you pray over your yeah. food, right? And the kids started making fun of her and pointing at her, and they asked the proctor, which was a school teacher, uh-huh. come over and tell her not to pray. You can't pray in public school. So sure enough. The little girl went home crying to mom. I can't yeah. pray. Yeah. And her name was Dovey Clopton. Dovey okay. went down to the school, got a hold of the superintendent and said, you need to correct this. Yeah. They won't let my daughter pray over her food. Yeah. And the superintendent said, no, she can't pray. That's, but that wasn't even. 1981. That's that wrong. The, yeah. And okay. that, but that wasn't even on, that she wasn't, wasn't even following even the books, out right? Loud. Yeah. She was yeah. praying silently. But that's, yeah, that like was totally erroneous. Like not even, that totally wasn't the law, erroneous. right? Not the law. Yeah. I mean, you could pray silently. Of course. There's yeah. probably a lot of prayers over before tests, right? Yeah, of course. So Debbie called me and she gave me this scenario and she said, 
I pulled my kids out that day. They never went yeah. back to school. Now they're telling me if I don't put them back in school, they're going to prosecute me and maybe take my kids away from me and maybe right. I'll go to jail. Right. I said, whoa, that's pretty serious. Yeah. So we quickly uh, developed a defense for her, and I had to figure out how do you defend a family? How do you defend homeschooling in mm-hmm. California? Because I hadn't even thought about it when I started homeschooling. Right. I didn't look at the law. Right. Anything that's as good as homeschooling must be legal. That's what I thought. Sure. sure. So I looked at the law, and I, I, I made an argument that a dovey could operate like a private school because okay. in California, and that's the way we homeschool today. Yeah. In California, the, the private school provision was loose enough but had structure to it yep. that I thought homeschoolers should be able to come under the private school provision yep. and comply with it. Yep. Well, the state disagreed with me okay. initially. And so we went to a district attorney hearing in Lancaster for Dovey, and I told her to bring all of her books in. And I gave the district attorney like a 12-page brief saying basically this, homeschooling is a constitutional right. If you don't recognize it, you have to recognize it somehow Mm. because of Pierce versus Society of Sisters and Yoder and all these these cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, he said, no, I don't. And I said, well, okay, let's talk about education. Mm-hmm. So if we're really concerned, because the superintendent was there, if we're really concerned about education, look what Dovey's doing, because in a month she had really gotten herself together. Yeah. She had a bunch of books. And they said, well, we don't care about that. And that's the first time I really realized that a lot of public education is not really concerned about education. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Is we don't care about that. She has to have her kids, her kids, in our school. Mm-hmm. That's what they said. Yeah. I said, well, she's not going to have her kids, so you just decide, have to decide what to do. Mm-hmm. We never heard from her again. They decided not to take her on or at least take us on. Interesting. And then shortly thereafter, I met Mike Ferris, and Mike Ferris shared the idea of Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which was um, from heaven. Yeah. Because the idea of spreading out, you could pay $100 for a yep. lawyer. Yep. All the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. Yep. That's ingenious. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. That comes from a, a, a person who's a visionary, mm-hmm. who's a problem solver. Mm-hmm. I said, that's a great idea. I wish I thought of that myself. Yeah. He said, well, would you like to be a part of it? Yes. And that's how we got started with HSLDA 1983. That's fantastic. Wow. 1983. We're now in 2021. How has homeschooling changed oh, since, since those days? Well, it's legal now. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's that's the biggest. That's difference. a huge change because until you change that, you will have some parents that will do civil disobedience. Yeah, but most won't. Yeah, they're not going to risk it. Right, especially when they tell you you could lose your kids. Right, right. We can take your kids, or we can put you in jail, and that's what that's how they threaten them. As a matter of fact, in Michigan, with a truant officer that would come out, they'd mm-hmm. send a police officer out. Just to intimidate parents. Wow. Wow. So the biggest difference, Daniel, is that parents today can start homeschooling and really not have to worry about whether they were gonna they're gonna get jumped yeah. on by the school district right off the bat. Yeah. With a social worker coming out or a truant officer and threatening to take their kid. That is a huge, huge difference. It's and massive. that's in every state. That's massive. That's the main difference. Of course, the second thing is it's just a lot more there's a lot more stuff out there to help parents be able to equip their, you know, equip yep. them to be able to teach their kids. Early on, the conferences, the state organizations started building up, and the conferences were huge. Mm-hmm. That's kind of that's kind of waned mm-hmm. over yep. the years. Yep, and that's really a big difference. Yeah, uh, a huge difference because I think most homeschoolers actually went to conferences back then. Yep. They went for fellowship to find yep. other homeschoolers because yep. maybe you didn't even have any in your county. Yeah. You went for that. You went to get encouraged. There was always encouragement there. Yep. And then the big vendor hall, that's where you bought that's a lot you of your stuff. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think those are the major changes yeah. today. That, I, that's, I think that's great. That's a great uh, analysis. Why should families choose homeschooling today? I believe it's the strongest, most beneficial thing you can do for your family. Family is family, but in order to be family, you have to spend time together. Mm. You've got kids going off to public school. They spend six or seven hours a day Mm -hmm. before COVID. Yeah, yeah. That changed. Yeah. And a lot of families found out 
life can actually be good with our kids home yep. around us. Yep. As a parent, I wanted to be the most important person in my children's life. Mm. Kids go off to school, a lot of times one teacher will be the most important. Sure. And maybe that teacher's not in their best interest. Sure. I believe family, close families too. A lot of our families are Christian families. They're religiously motivated. Yep. And to be able to help them be able to raise their children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord is yeah. a tremendous blessing to be yeah. able to do that. But just for any family, I believe that to be able to direct your children's education and direct their upbringing is a God-given right mm. and a God-given responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's the reason HSLDAs really exist, is to be able to encourage parents to do the right thing, especially Christian parents. How, how can a Christian parent put their kids in school today, in a public school? Mm, yeah. With everything that's going on, you talk to Mike about this, is what's going on. Yeah, yeah. It's So that homeschooling is very, very important to protect our children now from a lot of the garbage that's going on out there. Protect them from abuse, bullying. Yeah. Give them opportunities. Yep. And, oh, by the way, it's the best way to get educated. Mm-hmm. It's the best way to get smart. It's the best way to get knowledge. Now, knowledge in and of itself just puffs you up. Sure. Right? So when it's not about knowledge, we're about wisdom also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Home education, the modern movement's the greatest thing that's come to America, in my opinion. Wow. I, I, I like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you mentioned, you know, the issues that, you know, there's, there's bullying, there's other issues, fair, you know, we hear about a lot of them in school these days. And then, of course, you also mentioned the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, for at least a while, it's it's it, a lot of places are opening up. Some still aren't. But for, you know, last year, everybody was homeschooled That's or, right. or, or, you know, or doing, at least the kids were yeah, home. Right, right, right. right exactly. <laughs> I was I was joking because I was homeschooled growing up and I was I was joking with some homeschooler friends. And I was like, you know, if they've ever made a homeschool kid joke about us. No, they can't do it anymore because now they've now they've all spent a year doing their school at home. And if they say the next thing about homeschoolers, we'll be like, well, I mean, what were you doing in 2020? You exactly. Know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so, yeah. So but but seriously, though, with with the coronavirus pandemic, people realized, oh, we have to, you know, even if they're doing public school at home, the parents have to find them lunch and make sure there's an adult or, you know, figure out how to how to take care of them during the day. Do you think that's going to result in a net increase or have we seen a net increase that's like beyond just just the the lockdown in homeschooling well the u.s census bureau has been doing some surveying of families Mm -hmm. during this coronavirus asking a lot of questions not just about education but a lot of questions trying to find out who's working who isn't how is it impacting that sort of thing but one of the questions they did ask them is whether or not they were homeschooling Mm. And they defined homeschooling as actually not having your children then enrolled in public school. Interesting. Yeah. And homeschooling has doubled, according to them. Wow. Doubled. And with that definition, I'm not... That def- definition. Wow. That's a pretty tight definition. Yeah, it is. Now, whether we will continue with that, that's going to be interesting to see. Yep. I definitely think we're going to grow. I don't think yep. there's any doubt about it. Yep. Because we're hearing testimonies of folks that have joined HSLDA. Yeah that are saying, I did not realize how beneficial this is to have my kids around me. Yep. I did not realize what in the world they were not learning. Yep. They're not learning. Yep. And I didn't know the stuff they were learning. I don't want them to learn. Right. And this is going to be big. So conscientious parents are going to say, I'm not sending them back. Yeah. Yes, we will definitely grow. I heard a few stories during the pandemic that were, and I'm going to say this was every school or something like that, but there was stories where there, where there were teachers who were basically like ma- trying to make sure the parents weren't hearing whatever the classroom was. Not not like they were, ne- I don't know that they were necessarily saying something super controversial, but they were basically like, parents, go go about your business. We're, we're doing, you know. We're, we're doing the school here. And I, I, as a parent myself, I, I was like, if that happened to me, I wouldn't feel very good about no, that. No. And try to go to the public school and yeah. help your kid. Yeah. They'll kick you out. You can't mm. do it. Yeah. Despite the fact that public educators will admit, if you ask them, what's the number one most aspect of a child's learning to be able to get a good education, they'll say parent, parental involvement because they know it. Sure. Yeah. But they discourage it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And this is sad. I have a neighbor who is a public school teacher. I was talking to her. Yep. Because in Loudoun County, where we live, they've just started going back. Yep. In the schools, in yep. person teaching. And she said, I could tell the children that their parents had, she's got kindergarten, uh-huh. read to their kids. Wow. And those that didn't. Wow. I said, well, what does that tell you about parents? She said, oh, yeah, it's, it's very important. Yeah. Parental involvement is the key. That's awesome. Um, it's interesting because, like, I knew I heard a lot of people or even some friends who they were trying the in-home education during lockdown, you know, even if they were public schooled, they were trying to do their, their public school home. For a lot of kids, they either as they were working out the kinks or just whatever the format was, it just wasn't working. It was, they were ending up in tears, which, you know, let's be honest, homeschoolers have their days where they've ended up in tears too. But <laughs> but the the I knew a lot of parents who were like, we cannot do what they were asking them to do. So they said even for a minute – we're going to try homeschooling until the schools, you know, back open. And in a sense, that's almost like the the free product trials that they give you. They're like, you know, thirty days of your money back, you know. And and so, if you know, if 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 homeschooling was some giant big business, which it isn't, it's super diversified. But that's an amazing product saturation of like try this experience for half a year, whatever, and and see what sticks. And you know, yeah, I I, I think you're right. I think I think. It'll be super fascinating to track those numbers over the next five years or so and see what drops off and what what stays at that doubling rate. Um, your boss, Joel Gruy, mm-hmm. is a gifted and talented man, as you know. I, yeah, he is. And passionate about freedom and yep. all the causes that HSLD yep. are involved in. But one of the things he does for us, he actually does research. Yep. Because he had that background when yep. he came to yeah. HSLDA. And we've already done three studies on these new people. And so we're going to continue to track them because we now have them in our database. And we're going to continue to track them all the way through their experience to find out who did it, who continued doing it, why you did it, what were the benefits of it. I think we're going to have some really good data before That's going to be fascinating. I can't wait. We should maybe maybe whenever we're – we have that more packaged up or, you know, we want to share something about it. We can do, we can have you back on the podcast and you can, we can do some data Love to come dive. or you could bring Joel and ask him. Hey, there him. we go. That's great. Yeah, that's true. That's Just true. slow him down so we can understand him. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, let's see. Let's see. There was a lot of buzz last year kind of around the, 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 during the time of the pandemic, uh, around homeschooling and a certain Harvard professor, <laughs> and what's it sounds like there's a story there. What's the what's the short version of that story? Well, Daniel, of course you know it, but Elizabeth Martha Lett, who is a professor, law professor at Harvard University, wrote a law review article over ninety pages that was published in the Arizona Law Review, uh-huh. and the thesis of her. Law Review article was homeschooling should basically be illegal, presumptively be illegal. That's that's what the kids call a hot take. That's a hot take. <laughs> now, what she was saying is that she was saying, I don't think homeschooling should be obliterated altogether, uh-huh. but only the elite should be able to do it. And we'll yeah. determine. Yeah. The state will determine who can homeschool. And, oh, by the way, we're going to tell you how to homeschool. Yeah. And we're going to monitor your kids. We're going to make sure you're successful. Well, that got us upset, needless to say. Sure. So we actually wrote a book. A series of articles were written each week <clears throat> and placed in our uh, our WU mm-hmm. weekly update. Yep. From our lawyers, including Mike Ferris. Yep. Uh, also, Greg Harris wrote an article. Oh, wow. So we have a whole book on this Harvard adventure. Yeah. Now, she had scheduled what really got us upset also. She had scheduled a, um, uh, I guess you'd call it a seminar, uh-huh. but it was um, not open to the public. Okay. By invitation only to okay. the seminar. Okay. And the purpose of the seminar was to find a way to execute her belief in her her article and so we stormed harvard with you know we sent got the word out mm-hmm. a lot of harvard grads that are homeschoolers yeah. they they protested with letters and yeah. phone calls to harvard harvard never responded that i ever saw and i sent mm-hmm. a couple letters myself but that conference was canceled mm-hmm. and just yesterday harvard actually started an online conference that our own Mike Donnelly appeared on yesterday, 
Wow. And the opening debate was, what about the laws, the homeschool laws? Do they need to be changed? Because Bartlett believes that we need to tighten up on homeschoolers. Mm-hmm. HSLDA, that, that's the other thing, one of the other things that she focused on in her article is the detriment to homeschooling of Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Oh, wow. Because guess what? We keep the state from interfering into the lives of homeschool families yeah. through yeah. increasing regulation. Yeah. So we're bad people right. because of that. Well, obviously, we disagree with her. Yeah. And the battle is going to be fought. Uh, as long as we can continue to be able to lobby the legislatures, as long as our homeschool families will do that and get mm-hmm. involved, I think we can preserve our freedom like we want it. Yeah. But that's going to be important for our people to engage. Yeah. So when we ask them to do something, like write a letter, yep. make a visit, go to the state house and testify, yep. they need to do it because their freedom is at stake. I mean, Homeschooling is a threat to public education. Hmm. It is a huge threat. It's a threat to a lot of like Elizabeth Bartlett. Her, I think, looking behind how she thinks, she does not want Christian parents to be able to teach their children that Jesus is the only way. Wow. She doesn't want them to. Be, that's okay to do it, but they need to be exposed to somebody in a public school that would tell them about evolution, uh-huh. and that they wouldn't hear God uh-huh. in their instruction. God wouldn't be part of their education. Mm. Now. That's the same folks that preach tolerance for them. Right, right, right. They don't tolerate Christian families. Mm. And it really upsets them that they can't indoctrinate them into their human, secular humanism Mm. and belief that God doesn't exist. Right. Or that God's not important, irrelevant. That's really the battle right there. Yeah. Well, you know, that sounds like I've... I, I don't meet many people like this because I don't think you have to think super hard to get there. But there's some people where it's like they're homeschoolers maybe. They're, they're like, oh, I've never had an issue. It's always been legal. You know, it hasn't been. But, you know, as far as they've been involved, it's always been legal. So why should I join HSLDA? Why, you know, <laughs> what's what's the point? But it's it sounds like you don't even have to look very far. You know, don't – of course there's the, the vigilance needed to protect freedom. We That's an American ideal to the core that, you know – if if you value freedom, you got to be vigilant about it, or it's or it's just gone. If you just if you just turn your back or, or get lackadaisical, but it's not even that there's no current threats because you got people who, saying homeschooling should be presumptively illegal. So, what what else would you say to somebody on the fence about uh, being an HSLDA member? Daniel, most people join HSLDA for peace of mind. Uh-huh. I mean, let's be honest. We've done the surveying. We know that. Yeah. But, you know, very close to that is they just want to be part of the movement. Hmm. And they recognize there needs to be an organization like HSLDA that full-time monitors everything that's going on that could impact their lives in terms of home education. So they join fully believing they'll never have to use us personally. But they want to contribute to protect homeschooling freedom and make sure it's available for their kids and their kids, grandkids. In other words, they want to perpetuate homeschooling. Yeah. One of the privileges I have at HSLDA is I get to call up our major donors. Mm-hmm. These are people that give lots of money mm-hmm. to our Compassion Fund, our Freedom Fund. Yep. And what they tell me universally, almost 100%, is the reason we give is because we want to perpetuate homeschooling for our kids. Wow. And we recognize that homeschooling is something you have to fight for. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have to fight to get there... To get the freedom to do it, right. you have to fight to maintain it. Mm-hmm. And they know that. Mm-hmm. That's our members. That's who they are. So if you want to be part of an organization, you want to partner with somebody that's actually advancing freedom and protecting it, not only for you, but for your kids yeah. and your grandkids, join with us. Be a partner. That's awesome. Got a couple more questions, and then I'll let you go. I don't want to take up your whole day here, but I'm, I'm loving this conversation. Um <laughs> Do you view your work here at HSLDA as part of your ministry? Oh, yes, I do. I didn't see it that way initially, and certainly I never, you know, when I was in law school, I passed the bar. I practiced law for 15 years. I never thought that I would be doing 
what I'm doing right now. I had no concept. Now, when Mike Ferris started HSLDA, he started with the idea that it would be his full-time employment. That's how committed he was. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't have any idea I'd be a part of HSLDA Mm full-time. You'd just be kind of part of the brain trust or whatever. Well, I actually wanted to help, yeah. Uh And so when we initially started out, Mike and I were doing much of the contact work. And then Mm -hmm. we hired Chris Clicka. He was our first lawyer. But Chris had to go take the bar several times. And so Mike and I were actually dividing up the United States and the Mississippi River. And I took the West and he took East. And we did it. Kept it going, and it was miraculous. So you were the me. best homeschool attorney west of the Mississippi. I, I don't know if best, but maybe the only. I think we need to make you that plaque. I think it's like the Wild West. Maybe you know? the only. Yeah. There weren't many out yeah. there, Daniel. Uh, Rutherford Foundation was out there, and, and John Whitehead, and they were helping us. Okay, but there weren't all these um, advocacy groups, you know, Christian advocacy mm-hmm. groups, uh, lawyers out there then. This is 1983. Yep, they've sprung up since. So that, that's uh, something I didn't plan for, uh, but it's something that truly God ordained. Wow. There's no doubt about it. That's powerful. That. Were you always a natural leader, or was that something that developed over time in your life? Well, you don't think about it when you're a kid mm-hmm. growing up. And I definitely was not a person who would jump up and say, I want to lead, uh-huh. jump up first to do yeah. things. That, I was a little reticent that way. Yep. But when I look back at it, I, I suppose maybe I was. I was the captain of a basketball yeah. team. I was the lead in the senior play. Um, the school teachers voted me the most outstanding senior in my senior year, outstanding right. student in my senior year, you know, things like that. Yeah. But I didn't think about it that way hmm. as a leader. And, and, again, I wouldn't advance myself that to might be, be a leader. That might be a healthy – that might be a, a sign of health. I don't know, but that, that's just the way it was. And in college, I purposely didn't get involved in organization. Uh-huh. I mean, I wasn't a joiner. I'm not a joiner. Uh-huh. That's the whole thing. Typically, I don't join. I don't get involved. So to be able to exercise your leadership, you generally have to be involved in something, sure. an organization, sure. right? Yep. You have to have an organization – so a leader has people under, you know, behind right, right. You have to have people. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't do that. Huh. But then when I was 21 years of age, Daniel, I had to be a leader because I became an ensign in the United States Navy. Wow. I was an right. officer at 21. That's, that's pretty young for that, it is. isn't it? It is. Yeah. But um, right out of college, I went to Navy OCS in Newport, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. got a commission. I was stationed in Las Vegas, Nevada, or close to it. All right. At have a top secret base, which I had not many to oceans you. out there. No, no lakes, nothing. This was a defense atomic support wow. agency base, and I can't tell you what I did. Otherwise, okay. you'd be in trouble. All right, and I would, I'd be in more trouble. I'll, 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 so I'll stay safe. So all of a sudden, I'm leading. Yeah, I have to lead. I have no choice. Yeah, I'm telling people what to do. Yeah, and some of these folks are twice my age. Right, and they certainly know a lot more than I right. do. But I can't act like I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what I did, Daniel? This is is something I think God gave me, is I went to the folks that I work for. Uh After I got there, I said, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know a lot. Yeah. But I want to learn from you. Mm. And I'm going to make mistakes. Yep. I want you in a polite way to tell me if you think I'm going down the road, the wrong road. Yep. I think that was the best thing I could possibly do because I saw the opposite happen. I yeah. saw these young guys come in and act like they knew it all. Yeah. Their enlisted men would not work for them, and they would even sabotage them. I, I 100% believe that. That, God bless that. I mean, that was from God. Yeah. That's, and that's humility. Well, yeah, but it's just common sense. Yeah, true, yeah. Common sense. If you don't know as much as the folks that you're leading, yep. you better find out what they know. Yep. And you better let them know you don't know what yep. they know. Yep. That's and great. when you do that, Daniel, when you're willing to be transparent and to be honest, yeah. you can't believe the work, the hard work that they'll put in to try to help you, to make you look good. That's, that's powerful. That's powerful. That's, a, that's something our young people need to remember mm-hmm. and need to know. Yeah. That's, that's, when you the, get to the top, you don't know it all. Yep. And your success is going to be based upon what your people think about you mm-hmm. and how hard they'll work for you. Yep. They have to like you. Yep. If they don't like you, you're in trouble. Yeah. So don't be a jerk. Yeah, I like that. 
<laughs> T-shirt. Um, <laughs> amazing. Um, what is something else that most leaders miss that, that, you, that you would think – you know, there's certain things about leadership that everyone's like, oh yeah, of course you gotta be able to do that. Of course you gotta be able to do that. Even, you know, you know, sometimes for good leaders, even humility is like, they're like, make sure you have humility. But what's something that leaders forget to think about? I think that's it. Uh, I've read books on leadership. Uh-huh. Okay. The best books are the ones that talk about relationships. Mm-hmm. And they, they say the most important thing of being a good leader is the relationship you have with the people you're leading. Yeah. Again, if they don't like you. Yeah you're not going to be a good leader. You're not going to be successful. Yep. Now, that doesn't mean that you give in all the time. Right. And, you know, when they want off and they want special days. Right. Or, you know, if every week we want to be casual days, which incidentally, right. Daniel, how do you like our year of casual days? It's been, it's been. Hasn't it been great? Yeah, it's been pretty awesome. Yeah, for the folks out there, for a year now, we've actually been in casual day mode. Now, normally yeah. we do casual days every other week or, right. or for special right. occasions, right, right yep. Daniel? Yeah. Now it's just full time. And you know what? I'm beginning to, I don't think it makes any difference how people work. I don't think, yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Now, I, I, they can't see it, but I, I put on a collared shirt today, but it's short sleeve. So, you right. know, it's somewhere in between. Right. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's, uh, at least for me, it's like, Sometimes, sometimes I feel like I work a little better where, where you're like, I don't, I don't know. You just, it's, there's, it's, it's, there's a weird balance because it's like, you wouldn't want to show up in pajamas because I feel like you'd be like, you'd be like, then you would, that would affect your work. You'd be like, I almost feel sick or something, you know? But sometimes if, if you, you know, I've always been thankful I didn't work in a place where it's like a three piece suit every day. Cause I feel like I, I wouldn't be able to relax and actually like dig into the project. I don't so know. I got a story for okay, you. Okay, okay. So I came out in 1987 from California. California yeah. is a lot more casual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Than Virginia. Yep. So as a lawyer, even in my office, uh-huh. unless I went to court, I dress casually. Now okay. that's business casual. Sure, sure. It's not jeans like we're right, wearing now. Right, right, right. Yeah. So when I came out here, Mike Ferris and Chris Clicker were coming to work with a suit and tie, mm-hmm. and I came to work with a golf shirt and mm-hmm. some slacks. Mm-hmm. And after about two or three weeks, I went into Mike and I said, Mike, I, I don't want to embarrass you. Mm. If, if you really want me to wear a tie and a yeah. suit, I will do it. But I got to ask you, what goods? Are, we don't have clients coming uh-huh. in here. Uh-huh. Who are we impressing? Yeah. Ourselves? Yeah. Well, the next week, they were coming in in casual. <laughs> now, when we moved to Payonin Springs, uh-huh. oh, we... By casual, I mean business casual. Sure, 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 sure. So we started instituting, uh, this is about two years, this is like 1989. We started instituting casual days. Mm-hmm. Well, one of our gals who was a reception came in in shorts. Oh, wow. <laughs> Mike Ferris saw that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had to correct yeah, uh, yeah. that person. Yeah, yeah, We had to correct that person, but you're right. Yeah. Casual is not shorts. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Not sure. That, that's vacation. Yeah, that's that's that's. Uh, so even with casual days, there's yeah. a certain dress yeah. Up. There, there, yeah, there, there's a certain <laughs> right, right. There's always you can always do less. <laughs> um, uh, that's awesome. Um, what advice do you have for young people who are who are growing as leaders? And slash, we, you can choose how you want to answer this. Either in the in the terms of leadership, or in the terms of they have the seed of an idea. They have the inspiration. They they see the cause, and they want to do. They want to create the movement or the organization or the whatever that that goes and does something about it, like you and Mike did with homeschooling. Daniel, it goes hand in glove. Okay. Young people that are coming up with ideas are visionaries, and visionaries are leaders. Hmm. They're they're just made that way. Uh huh. And we don't need a lot of them. Yep. But we need them. Yep. Because they're the ones out front. They're the ones coming up with ideas. They're the ones starting new things. Yep. Now, they need to move on, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. They, they do get bored because they're visionaries and they need challenges. Right. And if they don't have challenges, they get unhappy. Yep. Because that's how they're made. Yep. So here's what you don't want to do. Around a problem solver or visionary, you don't want to raise up a problem unless mm-hmm. you want them to solve it. Hmm. Because they're yeah. very uncomfortable with you just talking about, oh, things are so bad. Look at our country. Uh-huh. 
that drives them crazy uh-huh. because they have to fix it. Right. See, I'm not a visionary type hmm. person. I can talk about problems all day long, <laughs> what's going on. I don't have to fix it. Uh-huh. My wife, however, yeah. is just the opposite. Okay. So if I bring something up like that, boom, she's automatically coming up with two okay. solutions. That's how she's made. All right. So it's hand and glove. Yeah. What I would suggest if they have ideas is to run them by somebody else. Mm. And if you're going to start something, generally you're going to start it as either a for-profit. Mm-hmm. And if you start for-profit, you don't have to have a board or anybody else to help you. Right. You can do it on your own. Right. But if you've got an idea that's really a non-profit idea like yeah. HSLDA, we don't want to – basically our motive is not um, of the profit. Right. Right. So if the motive is not profit, then it's non-profit. Yep. And you're probably going to need to incorporate and have an organization. In order mm-hmm. to do that, you have to have a board. It's required. Yep. Get some people together and see if they agree with you that this is a good idea. And if they do, start it. Yeah. Because when we started HSLDA, we had no idea how hard it was going to be. Yeah. If we'd have known how hard it was going to be, we probably wouldn't have done it. We had mm. one of our board members that became so frightened that he had, he actually had some money and resources. Right. He was afraid we weren't going to be able to represent all these people. That we'd get a big case, oh, wow. run out of money, and then he gets sued. Oh yeah. He quit. Oh man. He quit. Wow. There is risk. Yeah. And if there's not risk involved, it's probably not worth trying. Amen. I like to say Amen. this, and I think it's true that God has called us to the impossible. Hmm. We can do the possible, but God calls us to the impossible. Why? Because we need him. Amen. We're dependent upon him. HSLD would not be here without God's blessing. Yeah. So that's my advice. And one other thing, I I have a little book here in front of me called called Start With Why by Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K. I've heard, I've listened to some of this stuff. So if you're going to start an organization, you need to know why. Uh What's the why? Yep. Because generally, when you start an organization, you want other people to participate with you. Yep. You have to have a why. What's yep. your mission? HSLD's mission statement is clear. We're to advance and protect the fundamental right of parents to direct the upbringing and the education of their children. Mm-hmm. We can't forget that. Yep. That's the why. Yeah. So if you're starting an organization, you want other people to get involved with you, you have to figure out the why. And does the why appeal to somebody other than you? Hmm. Yeah. Other than you. Yeah. That's my advice. Amazing. Well, hey, uh, it's all, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to pick my, my favorite uh, last question to ask you. Um, here's an interesting one. What do you do for fun? I play golf. All right. Now, I've hurt my back lately, and I haven't been able to play like I'd like to. Okay. But I play golf. Golf, for me, is fun, and I've been playing it for many years. Great. Do you have a good joke? Well, I have, you know, it was kind of chilly this morning, Daniel. Uh-huh. It was really it was, unusually really chilly was. for yep. us here. And I saw yeah, it's something, gonna be in the 60s here I for the saw next something I'd never seen before. I saw a lawyer with his hands in his own pocket. <laughs> All right. I got a ton of lawyer jokes. Okay. Well, you know, that, that shows, that shows the ability to, to, to. Well, they're funny. Yeah. I mean, they are, they are. From, and this is from a lawyer, so, you know, that's... I told that joke up in Canada once at a yeah. conference, and Chris Click and I were speaking up there. And I was doing the introductions first thing in the morning. And I told Chris, I said, Chris, I'd like for you to be there uh, at 8.30. I want to introduce you and all the speakers, and then we'll go from there. Well, he didn't make it. And I did the first talk. Okay. And I opened with that joke. Yeah. I said, ladies and gentlemen, it was like zero degree. Yeah, yeah. I said, I saw something I never seen before today. I saw a barrister. That's right, right. With hands in his own pocket, a big laugh. Yeah. Chris Click, I introduce him. He comes up. Oh no. He says, ladies and gentlemen, I saw something I never seen before. No. No laugh. No. Nothing. No. Oh my goodness. That's (laughs) nuts. Oh my goodness. Well, hey, Mike, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I would love to have you back sometime. There's even more Anytime, we could talk about. Anytime, my friend. Anytime. Anything you want to final say before before I let you go to the Gen J audience? Well, one of the things I would like to share is um, my dad was my leader. Uh-huh. And so if dads are listening to us, you're a leader whether you like it or not. Hmm. 
So you might as well try and be intentional about it. Yeah. My dad was a leader despite the fact that he didn't accomplish a whole lot of things in his life. He supported his family. He was just a good example. Yeah. He was a quiet guy, rarely said much. Yeah. He didn't discipline me at all. He just encouraged me. But the one thing I remember about encouraging me was when I would uh, not try something and he would see I was reticent because I was reticent. Mm -hmm. He'd say, Mike, has somebody else done this? Well, yeah. Well, then you can do it. Hmm. And I'll never forget it because what he was saying is you can do anything. That's pretty profound. It doesn't take much from a dad. Yeah. Just words of encouragement. Yeah. Wow. So be encouraging to kids. The other thing I would say is relationships and anything we do, including the family, is the most important thing that we can work on, relationships. I love that. Well, hey, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Daniel. Until next time. Until next time. Hey friends, if you enjoyed today's episode of the Gen J Podcast, go ahead and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most of the other major podcast sites and apps. If you really liked the show, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a review, uh, hopefully a good review to help other people find it. Uh, This is really helpful when we're starting out with a new show to help people connect with the podcasts who are already listening to similar podcasts. We would love to stay in touch with you, so shoot us an email at info at generationjoshua.org or follow us at Generation Joshua on Instagram and Facebook. We will be back soon with another episode.